So we are in the book of Numbers, if you can believe it, this summer. We're reading the book of Numbers. Nobody ever reads the book of Numbers, but we are doing it. And before we jump into the text, I wanted to tell you about a man named Gabriel Barkai. This guy was born um, literally during World War II in Hitler's Jewish ghettos in Budapest. This is 1944. And luckily, the Russian army liberated the ghetto he and his family lived in weeks before they would have been sent to a concentration camp, just a few weeks. And instead, they immigrated to Israel in 1950, and at age six, um, Gabriel found himself as like a little boy just running around the streets of the old city of Jerusalem, just wandering, collecting, he said, little treasures and things that looked old to him. And he started to bug his dad to get him books on history and archaeology and kind of got hooked on it. And um, eventually went to Tel Aviv University to study archaeology and went all the way through to his PhD. And in 1970, he was looking for a subject for his dissertation. There was a, a ton of scholarship going on in old sections of the city of Jerusalem. All these digs were happening. So there wasn't what, much room for like a young, you know, PhD student. So he, did, he decided to look on the outskirts of town. He was looking at like old maps and just thinking to himself, if I lived at that time, where would I put things like the dump or the, you know, the quarry or burial sites or public gathering sites outside the city? And he began to focus in on a rocky knoll just outside the old city known as Katef Hinnom. And um, it's on the west rise of the Valley of Hinnom. You can see those, those dark things are valleys. It's this, this left one over there. It's kind of um, on the southwest shoulder of Jerusalem. In fact, Katef means shoulder. And um, so this is Jerusalem's shoulder. There's this little hill that sits on the ancient road between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And Barkai was just sure something had to have been on this hillside at some point. And nobody was looking at it, so he thought he'd try. On the top of the hill was um, St. Andrew's um, Scottish Memorial Church. And so he got permission, and began to dig and survey on the hillside below. Quickly found some old pottery, like really old, dating to the Old Testament period. That was, that was pretty rare to find. And it was enough to write his dissertation on. But then 10 years later, he returned to the site to start a larger um, excavation. The problem was he didn't have any money and couldn't pay people. And so what he did is went to the local archaeology club and found a bunch of 12, 13-year-old boys who were nerds like he was when he was that age and liked history and archaeology. And that was his team. He taught them how to dig. And they started excavating this hillside. About three days in, they uncovered an ancient burial tomb. It was cut into the rocky hillside. And then they found another one and another and another until they had found seven of these all of them dating from the 8th to 6th century B.C. These are old. Um, the largest one had five chambers, each of them with a rock slab where they lay the bodies underneath the chamber for the bones. You can see that this is what tourists do. They have these little cutouts for the heads. They lay there and take pictures. It's kind of morbid. but um, So the, what they would do is place... place people's bodies on the slabs, and once it decomposed completely, they would take the bones and put them underneath in this massive chamber where they would lay with their ancestors, all their whole family there, and it kind of made, made room for the next generation on the top slab, right? It was, it's how they did things. And the team dug out all these caves and found what they expected, which is they were all looted hundreds, if not thousands of years before. 
On um, Barkai's crew, though, was a little boy named Nathan, one of those kids who has like a ton of energy and not much sense. Um, see also Tim Suttle when he was 12, 13. Um, and this kid made Barkai really nervous. Like he was always screwing around and, and he had to keep a close eye on him. And he had this habit of coming up behind Barkai while he's working on something and pulling on his shirt to get his attention and then asking him like endless questions, this endless question. A kid had always had something to say or ask. And Barkai admits, like, years after, he's like, I was kind of annoyed with this kid. And at one point, they, we needed to clean out a tomb, he said, and so we just, I just sent this kid to do it, because I was like, go spend an hour in silence by yourself in a cave. And he was supposed to make it spotless, he said, like your mother's kitchen, so that they could take a picture of it. So he did. He cleaned it meticulously, but then he got bored, because he had told him not to come back. And um, he also had this little hammer with him, and so this kid starts just banging on the floor of this ancient tomb with his hammer, and suddenly a crack appeared. And he hit it a few more times, and the crack gave way, and a big hole appeared in the floor. And a few moments later, on, clear on the other side of the dig, Barkai felt that familiar tug on the back of his, his shirt, knew it had to be Nathan with a string of endless questions. He turned around, and it was Nathan, all right, standing there holding two fully intact pottery jugs, that he had pulled out of this cave. And Barkai, Barkai was like, where'd you get those things? And for the first time in his life, apparently Nathan was speechless. <laughs> and he led Barkai to the cave to show him what he found. Apparently, centuries before, the roof of the chamber had collapsed and covered the lower burial chain, chamber. Nathan had broken through that layer of rock. And underneath was all this stuff. Barkai immediately knew this is huge. Everything over here is like from... 8th to 6th century B.C. He knew also this is too much for the boys, so he sent all the boys home and called his grad students. They got there, and he swore them all to secrecy. He was like, seriously, you cannot tell your spouses, your friends, your parents. Nobody can know about this, or grave robbers, robbers will show up. And we can't afford security. So they, they kept things quiet and started to dig 24 hours a day in shifts. And underneath this chamber... Um, they uncovered things that nobody had seen in nearly a million days. I like saying it that way because it sounds like much longer, like 2,600 years. It was just filled with artifacts dating all the way back to the, the reign of King Josiah. It's considered to be one of the greatest archaeological finds in history. Um, and it gives this kind of glimpse into the time of Israel's kings, the, the Dave, the David's dynasty. Just after the fall of Jerusalem, um, it was before that, and then up to the fall of Jerusalem, that's like 587 B.C. That means that the last time anybody saw any of these things, the prophet Jeremiah was still alive. It's crazy. David's sons still sat on the throne. Inside, they found the remains of 95 ancient Israelites and thousands of burial gifts from a span of, you know, centuries, silver jewelry and coins and precious stones, oil lamps, earthen jars, wine decanters, pottery made from alabaster and ivory, the seal of a wealthy Jerusalem family that was found elsewhere so they knew whose, whose tomb this was. And one of the students found this curious little cylinder about an inch long, which turned out to be a silver scroll it was rolled up in such a way that they could run a string through its center and hang it around their neck. It formed an amulet, like a charm they'd wear, for protection against evil spirits. 
We found actually two of these silver amulets. And at the time, they had no way to, to unroll them without destroying them. And so they kept trying things, and they're like, we, we cannot mess this up. It took several years. Finally, this guy developed a technique um, where they were able to unroll them. And what they found engraved on these scrolls was our passage of scripture for today from the book of Numbers. And you are right now looking at, over there, it's not a great photo, but you're looking at a picture of the oldest surviving text from the entire Hebrew Bible. And it's a passage that is often called Aaron's blessing, or Berkat Kohanim in, in Hebrew, the blessing of the priests. The text itself reads like this, and you should, you should recognize this. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, you will bless the Israelites as follows. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. They, the priests, will place my name on the Israelites and I myself will bless them. So that's what they found. Crazy, right? The oldest piece of scripture is this thing that we say all the time around here. The history of blessings, of course, in the scripture goes all the way to the beginning. Genesis 1, God blesses the animals. Genesis 2, God blesses the seventh day, the Sabbath. God blessed Noah after the flood, blessed Abraham with this elaborate blessing that reads, I will make of you a great nation and will bless you and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless those and curse those who curse you and all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. That's five blessings in like one short little section. Jacob, you remember, would steal his father's blessing from his twin brother Esau. And then bestow his own blessing, not on his first son, Reuben, but on a younger son, Judah. Blessings, that's just the beginning. They, they run throughout the story of God. And what exactly blessing means can differ from person to person, era to era. But if we consider why somebody you know, 2,600 years ago, would go to the trouble of carving Aaron's blessing into an amulet or a charm and wearing it around their neck so often that their family decided to bury them with it. I think this can give us some insight as to how the ancient Hebrew people conceived of blessing. Um, the Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, he, he talks about blessing. He, he writes this, he says, a blessing is an act by speech or gesture whereby one party transmits power for life to another party. I like that phrase, power for life. Now, it's clear that the Israelites saw God as the ultimate source of, of blessing. In each line in, the, in this little section, it begins, the Lord bless you and keep you right, the Lord, the Lord. It's, it's credit goes to God. But the detail at the beginning is the priests are asked to pronounce the blessing. So blessing somehow involves this divine human cooperation. We humans do this together with God. Like they, they believed that somehow God had um, given us the capacity to transmit um, what Brueggemann calls power for life from one party to another. So it's not just like purely symbolic or like a vague expression of, of goodwill. Blessing has real power that can impact a person's life. 
Remember Esau's tearful begging after his brother Jacob stole the blessing. Bless me too, Father. Don't you have a blessing left for me? He was just distraught. And of course, we have this, we have an aversion to magical thinking, which is good. Like we should, we should have that. But the people of God has, have always believed something powerful can be transmitted when we bless things. Not that it's like magical. It's not Harry Potter. Like it's not casting a spell or conjuring or controlling things. But there's a recognition of this human capacity to become a conduit of the presence and power of God that materially impacts other things. I mean, think about this. This is really important. Human beings alone, out of all the creatures, have this capacity to act as a conduit of God's power for life that has a material impact on people and on, on the world. So we may, may not be the source of God's blessing, but we play an indispensable role in, in blessing as physical creatures, you know, as rational creatures. Creatures of language and thought and meaning. God has given us um, the ability to bless things in such a way that our blessing changes the world. Brueggemann again says, Blessing is an intentional, deliberate act that proposes to enhance the receiver's life in its material dimensions. There's power in blessings. I don't mean blessing like just a declaration of God's general, you know, provision for our lives. It's more than that. A blessing impacts something real, like something changes. It's, there's, there's power here. Something transfers from one person to another. If you don't believe me, just consider people that you know who, in a sense, never received their parents' blessing and how that has marked them throughout their life. A mother or father who just is, withholds the blessing and is critical or pits siblings against each other or whatever. Children suffer. We see this and it lasts. It's a pain that follows them around. Blessing is real. It changes things materially. The power of blessing, it's, it's really unexplainable. We can't really account for why it works. We only know that it, it works. Brueggemann, again, he says, viewed theologically, the transmission takes on the quality of the sacramental so that more happens than can be explained. A sacrament is when, when you know, something physical takes on spiritual significance. So it's this divine human kind of or divine material um, mix. It's sacramental. This seems right to me. A blessing is, is sacramental. It's like baptism or communion. We just performed a sacrament, right? A blessing. This, is, this, this kind of stuff changes things. And it's this mysterious thing we don't generate, but in which we can participate. And, and we do this by giving generously of our own spirit. Did you feel that when we raised a hand in a blessing toward Hazel? Like, we, we give of our spirit to another person. Paul called it, the Apostle Paul called it kenosis in Greek. That just means to pour out, to empty out. So when we empty ourselves out in a blessing, it is the nature of God to rush into that. God hates a vacuum like nature and just fills it with God's spirit. And, or, or as Brueggemann says, with God's power for life. 
So whenever humans decide to bless, it's an act of kenosis, of self-emptying. It's like saying, I pour out just a little something of my life onto you in a blessing. And then God rushes in to fill the void for, for both, really, with presence and power for living. Another guy that I love, Frederick Buechner, who, by the way, Buechner and Brueggemann had the same Old Testament mentor at Union Theological, so they see this alike, but Buechner says, a blessing is the speaking of a word of great power. It is the conveying of something of the very energy and vitality of the soul to the one being blessed. I hope he's right. To speak a blessing is to convey and transmit a tiny piece of who you are, your, your own life and vitality, he says, to another in an act of kenosis, self-emptying. And God fills the void with a tiny piece of God's own life and vitality, simultaneously then adding to the life of the one being blessed and the one doing the blessing. For a minute, I want us to, to look at like the, the details, like the structure and language of Aaron's blessing, because I think the way it's organized and the words used actually can, can really convey some interesting things about its meaning. If you, if you look closely at it, um, there are three phrases that form a kind of crescendo. And um, in English, it's very difficult to see. Um, it's there in, in Hebrew. Um, if, if this was written in Hebrew, there, there are three words in the first line, five in the second, seven in the third. And in the first line, those three words have 15 letters. In the second, they have 20, and then 25. So it's 20, 20, or 15, 20, 25. And then in syllables, there are 12 in the first line, 14 and 16. So there's this deliberate kind of structure, each line building on the one before, putting emphasis on the later one since it's a crescendo. So it's crescendoing toward Peace, there at the end, shalom. And, and, and the first and last stanzas in, um, in Hebrew are exactly seven syllables. Um, the, the sections of the, those first section and last section, the, the ending kind of section has seven syllables, which points directly to Sabbath and Sabbath peace. And they resolve in, in peace. And the way it's written in Hebrew, you know, they order things differently. The very first word in Hebrew is bless. The very last word is peace. And, and so this, this entire blessing has this symmetry as well as this crescendo that it begins with God as blesser and keeper and it ends with shalom. In English, it begins, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Hebrew word for bless is um, barach. Um, which we've already talked about, this, this concept. Um, in Scripture, you can see it in that Abraham phrase, the opposite of bless would be curse, right? Blessing is the opposite of cursing. It was often equated with things like children, possessions, wealth, land, victory in war, or strength. But the rabbis say it's actually um, better to think of blessing as like whatever enables you to, um, to be faithful in your current task. So bless the student with intelligence and concentration. Bless the merchant with customers and honesty. Bless leaders with wisdom and humility. That's bless. The, the next word there is 
um, keep. In Hebrew, it's shamar, which may sound familiar to you. It, it goes all the way back to Genesis in the description of human vocation. If you remember, the, their um, first humans are asked to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, till the earth and shamar it, keep it, sustain it, right? Shamar is, is like, um, I always think of a beekeeper, keeping bees. That's shamar. Um, they preserve and maintain their bees. The humans are to preserve and maintain the earth. This, this helps us see what would be the opposite of shamar, which would be exploitation, a lack of stewardship, consuming without limits, discarding, mistreating, destroying, exploitation. It's the opposite of keeping. Shamar, that word is used again um, just a few chapters back in the, the description of the Levites and what their job is at the tabernacle. They are to shamar the, the tabernacle, to keep it. Remember, it's kind of a miniature Garden of Eden in, in the story and the sim, sim, symbolism. So like they are to not exploit it, right, for power because there's so much power there. So, so that God is Israel's keeper implies this idea of protection, preservation, provision, relief from the exploitation of Egypt under Pharaoh. God will protect them from enemies, from the wilderness, from evil, will sustain them in this bombed bar in the wilderness, this place of constant pressure. This is the role that God plays for them and by extension for all humanity. God is our keeper the keeper of our future. Man, I lean on this idea a lot that God has me. I need this to be true. The one who will not allow us to become exploited, at least not forever. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The next phrase, the Lord causes face to shine upon you. What does that mean? Causes face, is this just poetry? Like, what does this mean? In, in Hebrew, it's Ya'er Yahweh Panav. Um, so shine Yahweh his face. That's what it says, literally. It's sometimes used in scripture, this phrase to describe the sunrise. It's often translated, um, in, the, in fact, in the, the Hebrew text I read, it's deal kindly with you. Or it can mean, it can be a euphemism for smile, smile upon you. It's like a, I think of a superior, like a boss or a king or something who has like their favorite subject. They're always smiling on them. The opposite would be darkening of God's face toward people. And if, if Yair can mean smile, then maybe there's kind of a gladness to this idea. God, God's face holds gladness toward us. So darkening God's face would be to frown, be embarrassed, maybe ashamed. There's also, I love this, this implication of Yair that it enables us to bear the image of God. Like if God is shining God's face on us, then we can more easily reflect back God's image, right? It it allows us to be what we're supposed to be, image bearers. Also the implication of illumining our thoughts, you know, God is shining on us. We have wisdom, insight, intelligence for living. God's shining on us, smiling on us, making it possible for us to to reflect this divine image. This is, this is a big blessing. The next phrase, the Lord causes his face to shine upon you, it says, and then be gracious unto you. The word for grace in Hebrew is hanan. 
Um, I think all, my all-time favorite definition of what grace is comes from this writer named Kathleen Falsani. This is how she says it. She says, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you absolutely don't deserve. Isn't that great? That's it. Grace is just getting what you don't deserve, something good. Its, it's opposite would be um, condemnation, or maybe even justice. Think about that one for a while. They'll explode your brain. It's the opposite sometimes of grace. Grace is endless second chances, right? This lavish blessing we don't earn. So it also has this implicit for us um, confession, like don't give us, for heaven's sake, don't give me what I deserve, right? Make your face shine on me instead and be gracious unto us. That's the blessing of grace. Then it says, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Hebrew, this phrase for, for lift up his countenance is um, Yisah Yahweh Panav. It's similar to the one above. Um, that one was Yair Yahweh Panav. This is Yisah Yahweh Panav. So it's, it's very similar, except for that first word, shine Yahweh his face, or lift here, lift Yahweh his face. Well, so what's the difference between shining and lifting the face? Um, lifting, Yisah, seems to indicate something like giving one's full attention, like to regard the other with interest, not to be like busy or distracted um, and, and not paying attention. It, it, would be, it would be the opposite of ignore, ignore your face or ignore us with your, your face. It's like if you're watching TV or something and somebody says something to you and you, you answer them, but you never look away from the screen. That would be the opposite of lift up your, your countenance, right? And, and of course, what does that communicate? Like this happens so much in our house because I do a lot of writing at home at my desk and Kristen will come in and ask me something and I'll just keep going. I won't even speak because I'm like, let me get this thought down before I forget it because if I stop for just a second, it will be gone. And Kristen knows to wait until I can lift up my countenance, right? But if, if I don't, if I just keep typing and answer and don't look away from the screen, what does that communicate? And so this, this is saying, don't, don't do this to us. And um, it says, this is, this is more, um, this is, you are more important than anything else going on in my life right now. This is kind of the, the blessing from God. When the boys were little and they interrupted me, I just, I loved it. It was my favorite thing. I mean, there was this joy in looking up. I was never too busy to lift up my face. And this is what God is like toward God's children. God welcomes the interruption of his children in whom he delights. And think of like a grandparent when a grandchild walks in the room. That's, that's this he saw. So, so this blessing says that when you ask God for help, may God never be too busy to lift up God's face. Pay full attention to not be oblivious, to not overlook May God regard you with interest and with delight, lifting God's countenance, really seeing you, taking joy in you, raising God's head to just accept you as you are. And then finally, it ends to give you peace, which we talk about so much here. Peace, the Hebrew word peace, shalom, it's not just like lack of war, 
or conflict. Shalom means everything that exists, existing in its rightful place, doing what it was intended to do, and relating rightly to everything else in the world, existing where it's meant to exist, doing what it's meant to do, and thereby all of it flourishing and finding wholeness and an expression of of peace, of of life. That's that's peace. And um, after the blessing is over, it it ends in in peace, which you need right order. By the way, the opposite of peace is is not war, it's chaos, it's barrenness, these twin threats from Genesis 1 and 2 all the way to the beginning, chaos by the waters or barrenness of the desert. That's the opposite of peace, badly ordered creation as opposed to rightly ordered creation. So this this ends with this, this blessing, may the Lord give you peace. And then there's this little... Um, postscript it says after the priests pronounce the blessing they will place my name on the israelites and i myself will will bless them they will um samu et semi is is the phrase they will put my name upon them i think this is a callback to the the priestly garments if you remember this the the nazar the the little crown thing that's on the priest's head you can see a little gold thing right there it's engraved with the words i belong to yahweh so it's like the priest saying, look, the, the name of God is written on my head. May, may it be written on your heads To May we all be a nation of priests. It's God's way of kind of claiming us as children. Saying, my name is your name. You belong to this family. I will place my name on their heads. And then it says, I myself will bless you. And in, in Hebrew, it's really, the grammar is odd. There's this extra first-person pronoun, ani, before the verb, which is really unnecessary. The only reason it, it could be there is for emphasis. It's as if God is just emphatically saying, I'm doing it, me, myself. I'm the one placing my name upon you. I'm the one blessing you. God sees to this personally. It's part of the blessing. I know this is a lot of information. Sorry, I totally nerded out on that text, but it's really, really fun to study. I think when you dig into the structure and language, it kind of hits us, you know what I mean? Where we live. Touches every aspect of our life, our deepest longings. And I haven't even got to the best part yet, or what I think is at least one of the best parts, which involves the question of placement, like where's, where this falls in the book of Numbers. Um, because it's kind of... It's kind of weird. These people have been camped at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai for a year. So all the way back to the book of Exodus like 19, nobody has moved since Exodus 19. They've just been sitting here at the base of Mount Sinai. And suddenly here, they're about to break camp and move out. And, and they're going to wander for 40 years, for a whole generation. So they're about to leave and go on this journey, but it is going to be a season of profound disorientation for them. A season in which everything will be unsettled for a whole generation, for a long time. They'll be constantly on the move, constantly in danger. So So it's kind of strange. This is an oddly unsettled moment in which to offer this 
prayer of blessing that sounds like it sounds. And the rabbis say this is, has to be intentional. This is a blessing for, for the unsettled, for the ragamuffins and the strugglers and the doubters. This is a blessing for the people who can barely get through the day sometimes. Maybe that's why they gave the task to the priest, because their job is daily worship. And this prayer would be um, recited over all of Israel. Every single day they did it after the morning offering each day to remind all of Israel who blesses, who keeps, who leads to peace. You can kind of see why some person would have, like, living 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, you know, with Babylonians at the gates why they would go to the expense and the trouble of inscribing this on a little thin piece of silver and carefully rolling it into a scroll and passing wire or string through it and wearing it around their neck. Because Bamidbar in the wilderness, it was everywhere for them. And the truth is, it still is. The wilderness is always here. And it's good, I think, to be reminded of God's determination to bless us and keep us and sustain us when everything seems so unsettled in our lives. And the thing is, it's not just reading about what God is doing. We're supposed to participate in this. Like the way God's blessing gets mediated is through us, through people who decide to bless. Because like there are no rules you can just bless. You don't have to be a priest or have gone to seminary. Just bless. Anybody can do the blessing. And it should happen all the time, every day. That's why we say this, this prayer is our benediction every week at Redemption. And, and the truth is that part of what it means to be human is that we have been given the capacity and been tasked with, asked to take part in these lavish sacramental acts of blessing one another. We just, we've been given this ability to act as a conduit for the, God's power for life, to pronounce our blessings upon others, to impart something of the energy and vitality of life itself, even our own life, in a way that has a material impact on other people. It's crazy. It's not just symbolic. The blessing, it changes things mysteriously so. And so my challenge for you this morning, Redemption Church, go therefore into the world and bless others. Bless your neighbor. Bless your boss. Bless your mailman and your barista. Bless your children every single day. Don't let them sleep without hearing your blessing. Transmit to them something of your own life and vitality and energy. Look them in the eyes and lay your hands and squeeze their little faces and tell them that you, you bless them. Make sure they know your name is my name. Your life is my life. And I give an unconditional yes to your life. Bless those who are struggling and annoying at work. 
Bless the divorced and the betrayed. Bless the alcoholics and the addicts. Bless people in their sobriety and in their drunkenness. Bless the anxious and the worried. Bless the overweight and the overskinny. Bless the lonely and the sad. Bless the newborns. Bless the dead. Bless your pets. They could use a blessing. They're pets after all. Bless your favorite sports team. Bless your favorite sports team. God knows the Royals could use some blessings right now. Bless the baptized and the atheists. Bless the communion table and the fast food. Bless the screen addicted and the conspiracy theorist. Bless the teacher who doesn't really like you and the janitor who cleans things up. Bless the seniors who get all the attention and the good seats and the good tasks. And bless the freshman who drives you nuts. Bless the right lane drivers. You know who you are. <laughs> and bless those with lead feet. Bless the annoying and the charming. Bless the neighbor that you never see and the neighbor who just won't shut up and let you go inside. You're created to bless, to pronounce your blessing on the whole wide world. And you may not think people worthy of God's blessing, and you're right. But worthiness has nothing to do with it. And you may think you're not worthy to pronounce blessings, but all I can tell you is the world desperately needs you to reconsider. Because we have been blessed to be a blessing and to pronounce our blessing on the unsettled. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, um, we want to be blessed, and we look to you like our Father, and we say, lift up your face to us. Shine, Yahweh, your face on us and give us the courage to shine our face on one another. And in this wilderness of our lives here in the Western world today, could you make us a blessing? And I pray in very concrete ways, each of us would take this on as part of the human vocation, that we would find people to bless that it would mark us as disciples. Give us an imagination for what that looks like in our, in our lives and also in this community, we ask. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion now. The way we do communion at Redemption is we just will be released row by row, and you'll come forward, and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. And as you do, um, the servers will say, remember the body and blood of Christ. That's what they'll say to you. And you can just answer, I will remember however you um, feel comfortable answering. The reason that we do this is because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and a cup and all of his group of disciples, everybody with him, shared in the same, same loaf of bread in the same cup. And then he said this. He said, this, this bread is like my body. This cup is like my blood. Or that meant life to them. And so what I want you to do every time you gather is, is take my life into your life. Receive it. 
be made out of the stuff I'm, I'm made out of and then live on in the world as my hands and feet. He said, every time you gather, do this. And um, so this is, this is why we receive communion. It's not just symbolic. Something sacramental happens. We don't even know what it is. It's just a mystery. Um, but part of this inability to explain it is why we just welcome everybody at the table. Who knows what's happening? Just come. Anybody who calls on the name of Jesus can join us here. But let's first pray a blessing on the table. And God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and the spiritual food and drink. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out. Send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Will you come?